Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. You're very welcome along to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, Paul O'Connell will explain how the Irish rugby team is using drones, 5G and mobile private networks as part of their World Cup preparations. Cullen Boog will go through his favourite podcasts and discuss the art of an interview. And we will, of course, look at the great big mess that happened earlier this week with Bank of Ireland. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. Uh, But we're going to start this week with the rugby. Ireland will take on England in a warm-up match in just a few minutes' time. But I got to attend one of the training sessions on Wednesday of this week out at the High Performance Centre in Blanchardstown. There was a group of people at the side of the pitch that were looking to get selfies with Peter O'Mahony and Conor Murray and all the rest. But I was distracted by the drones flying overhead. They were there as part of a new technological solution dreamed up by the IRFU and team sponsor Vodafone to speed up the data analysis that happens at training. Ireland is the only team in Europe to use this technology uh, and how it works is the drones and a handful of cameras feed video into a truck that or a little van type thing at the side of the pitch that uses a 5G mobile private network. So that the analytics team can then process and give that information to the coaches within a matter of minutes. I spoke with Vinnie Hammond, who is the head of analytics and innovation at the IRFU, who told me how the technology used by the Irish rugby team has evolved over the last number of years. I think it, like evolving is definitely the way I describe it. What we could do 10 years ago, we thought was kind of cool and groundbreaking. And now what we're looking at is something we could never imagine um, in terms of the latency, video delivery, uh, the data that's available. And it's trying to now, the challenge is actually trying to make sense of it all. Mm-hmm. So we've got so much and, and actually uh, for me, it's about reducing what we take in and improving what we already have or what we decide is a good a, you know, a good piece of data, a good piece of technology or whatever it is in, in that sense. Mm. And just explain the layers of how it works because we know that the players wear trackers in the back of the jersey but we're here at your uh, at the training campus and this, I've seen drones, I've seen cameras, I've seen vans with antennas sticking out of them. So just explain the different layers and then how you digest it and then pass it back to the coaches. Yeah, digestion is, is the main thing for us, right? So there's no point in us having all of this if, if we can't get it into something actionable really quickly. And uh, actionable and speed are the two things that we would really drive. Um, so for example, at the training today, you would have seen there's six or seven cameras around uh, the facility here. They're all PTZ cameras, which are pan tilt zoom, so we can operate those from a control center in here. Um, the two drones in the sky are 5G connected, thanks to the Vodafone partnership that we have. And then the, the cameras that you see on the roof, they're the ones that we've been effectively trying to run as if we were in France this week, although we're in the HPC, um, to practice what it's going to be like when we go over there and we don't have the luxury of the facility that we have here. So, mm. And the, the, the 5G connectivity, obviously that's really important and really impressive. It's something that we've been talking about from a consumer point of view for years, but getting the use case and the benefit, like if I say you can download you know, a 4K film in 15 seconds, that's great, but does it really make a difference? In terms of your day-to-day and what you do, does that latency really make a difference? 
so there's two things to that right so if you say you could download a 4k film in 15 seconds to give you a practical application of what we would do after any international game six angles get uploaded from the home team right we're still compressing those with a h.264 so if you're a nerd you'll enjoy this chat and if you're not you probably switch it <laughs> off but they're compressed right and they're about four or five gigs at the end of that multiplied by five or six because they're six streams you're looking at about 30 gigs right so we have to take every single game that happens all over the world and download it and then we start working on it from there so the source is that big chunky video file at the start and we can't even get to 4k at the moment because of obviously file size and that so mm -hmm. what we've been able to do thanks to the the 5g is being able to speed that process up send video to the touchline send video back from the touchline not rely on wireless which is obviously going to be affected by all sorts of other things in the ground it could be microwave it could be a, you know one of those cameras that's walking up and down inside the pitch um, so yeah, it's eliminating all the noise and taking off what they've done here in, in the way they've described it to me is they've sectioned off a slice of 5G dedicated just to us mm -hmm. and whatever we go upwards or downwards on that is, is just for us. So it's effectively our own mobile private network, which is um, like, you know, two years ago, I didn't know was was even possible. So mm -hmm. in terms of your own team and the... Um the digesting of the information and passing it on to the coaches like I saw some of the players looking at iPads here and you know watching things that had just happened a few minutes before how important is that to not only the performance but also the improvement of the team after each session I think individually it's massive right so you know you've got a guy doing a skill session at the end of training there and they can look very quickly as what they're doing replay it check it move it move it you know a, a half a foot one way or the other in terms of i don't know high ball skills kicking that kind of thing and then from a team point of view you would have seen andy use the the big screen as a coaching tool because these guys go home today they might have you know some guys are going back to collect kids from school others are going to you know a sauna or a, a massage recovery there's a whole load of different things that happen in between then and, and the next time we catch up and we know from kind of from the evidence that we've we've got it it's really important to fix on the go and they remember it and it embeds it so they've seen it on the big screen they've seen it with their peers and we make a little change and all of a sudden then the next time they're on the pitch so we reckon and rightly or wrongly that the most effective coaching moments are literally as, as after it happened to embed the proper behavior or the proper um, running line or whatever so you don't get them very often but when they're there you know you take them and we use the technology when we can. That was Vinnie Hammond, the Head of Analytics and Innovation at the IRFU, speaking to me on Wednesday. Uh, also present on the day were Paul O'Connell and Simon Easterby, two of the Irish coaches. And they explained how this data impacts what they do and ultimately what happens on the pitch. Listen, I, I don't know a lot about the technology side of it, but what it gives us is, is a live review. So probably the first coach that really used this with us is John Fogarty uses it for his scrum stuff on a Monday, so in, in, indoors there we've a, a, a camera above. Uh, we'll do setups in the scrum. Um, they'll they'll engage against one another, and then they walk to a TV and they, there's a 30 second de delay, and they watch that scrum, and then they come back and they feedback to the coach on on uh, on what they did well and what they didn't do well, and who was aligned and and who wasn't aligned. And now we're bringing that out onto the pitch from kind of scrum into general play so when you see something that happens you can just go to one of the coaches with the mic and you can say can you cut that last rock for me and then he'll put that up for you and you can 
get the lads around the big screen and you can give them feedback and you know I think in research shows that the earlier you give the feedback the better it is the earlier you give the feedback the better chance you have of of, of a behavior change or, or a habit change so this is kind of called five star feedback where you can get a, a guy you can you can I suppose use the video to confirm you saw what you think you saw and then you can show the player immediately either on the big screen or, or on an iPad um, and they can go about their business as well so I suppose there's a number of good things there in that you know they, they're getting good feedback they're getting really accurate feedback you're not feeding back to them on what you thought you saw you're feeding back to them on what you know you saw and the other thing we have then is, is I think we've eight high resolution cameras here so even when we mall um, like my mall footage this evening will have six cameras on it so like we have a back lifter we want to look at what he has done so we have a camera angle from here we have a front lifter on the other side we want to see what he he has done we've drawn footage from uh, on top so we can see if there's any gaps or any any spaces in our mall and we've footage from either either end of the mall as well so you know trying to get that onto onto one screen uh, within five minutes of it happening so that we can feed back to, to the players is I would imagine it's pretty tricky uh, I would imagine it's pretty tricky but for us in terms of the value it gives us in terms of being able to live review it's 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 uh, it's absolutely incredible and it's actually something that we as coaches uh, are I suppose we need to get better at using it it's such new technology it's it's but the opportunities that it gives us are, are incredible. You know, we, are, we have a lot of review meetings and Andy speaks a lot about trying to find a way. So he doesn't want long meetings. He doesn't want a lot of meetings. So this is a great opportunity for us to find a way to have a quick review, a quick little meeting, a quick chat, fix something on the run, and then get back out on the pitch and, uh, and see how it works. I think that the live feedback, uh, Paulie's probably said, is, is invaluable. Uh, you sometimes leave the training pitch and players might leave with a bit of anxiety, a little bit of uh, concern about something that they, they think they might have done, could have done better. Um, you know, we obviously try and give live coaching feedback, but if they can see it and then they get a feel for, for exactly what happened, then it, it allows them to adjust and potentially go and um, put that into practice in the session itself. Uh, you know, every, every player, every coach, a different way of learning and a different way of explaining, but certainly for us it it becomes invaluable in that it's, it's, it's live, it's in the moment and players are, we're stressing them, we're trying to get them to, to a point where they feel under a bit of pressure uh, but there's also that ability to, to be calm and then make good decisions and some of that allows us to, to do that in there and then go back to the pitch and try and put it into practice. Just in terms of, there's so much data now and it's possible to gather so much data, how do you distinguish between valuable data versus just numbers and stats for the sake of it? Um, well, it's, it's the data that's important to you and it's your feel as a coach then of of when you're overloading a player or, or not. I would say, you know, we have all the data in the world, but we, we actually don't rely heavily on it. I, I think another thing Andy speaks a lot about it is the coach's eye. Um, and it's a skill that we're always trying to develop is our ability as coaches to see it for ourselves, you know, and not to be always relying on a video or not always be relying on a stat but I suppose you know within 24 hours of a game if you've if you've had a conversation with a few other coaches if you've had a conversation with a few players if you've 
you know, if you've seen it live in the game, then you've watched it on the video, and, and you've, you've a few stats on the side as well, you've a pretty good picture then of, of what happened or what didn't happen. Um, uh, and I think, you know, it's one of the challenges we had, certainly with the GPS, when, when the GPS first came in, you know, we, we used to get a load of information. I was a player when I first came in, and, and we used to get a load of information, and we didn't pay any attention to it. When the GPS stuff went down to a one-pager, it was something that the players were really excited to to look at and I think that's something that our video analysts are quite good at is is getting getting to the things that are really important and then us allowing the things that are really important influence our coaching and, and, and our plan for each weekend. Yeah, that was Paul O'Connell and Simon Easterby speaking with me on Wednesday. Uh, I know the conversations around technology and sport can be controversial at times. I was on Off the Ball Breakfast a few weeks ago talking about Hawkeye and people in the comments were quite vocal about their views. Uh, but I'd love to know what you think. You can email me techtalk at newstalk.com. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we'll look at the art of the interview. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Well, what's the relations like between you and him at present? Um, <clears throat> they're all right, you know. What all does right. all right mean? Uh, <laughs> so I find it fascinating that people find it fascinating, do you know what I mean? It, I haven't spoken to him for a few months, but not like I'm not actively not speaking to him. It's just that we kind of live in each other's pockets while we're on the road. And uh, I kind of just slip back into life when I get back off the road. And Liam does this thing and I do mine, you know? Well, most people think, though, well, it's deep, deeper than that, isn't it? There's all the well-publicised spats that you have and the quotes about not liking each other and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, he doesn't, he doesn't like me. He doesn't? No. Why do not you like him? <laughs> Well, I don't know. You'd have to ask him next time he's on here, wouldn't Come you? Come on, you know. I don't, well, I don't, I don't, I, well, because I'm better looking than him, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, has it always been like that? Was it, was it when you were growing up as kids in, in Manchester, was it like that? Well, because he was, he was five years younger than I, than I am. So, when, when I was 15, he was 10. So, the, so the age gap was kind of more prevalent then than it is now. But, um, <clears throat> I guess because... There is a lot of pressure being in, 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 in a group, particularly being in a big group, you know. And um, we kind of fall out on a regular basis. But it's not, it's not anything that's ever put the band in danger. The only people that suffer, really, are the other... Whoever happens to be in the band at that point, you know, is the other people in the band. You know, there's been hundreds of them in the past. But <laughs> do, do, do you wish that could, you could define that brotherly love as it's really generally defined, you know? Well, I could define... Let's put it this way. If he was getting his head kicked in right now, right, <laughs> I'd probably join in to save him. Right? If I was getting my head, he'd probably join in to save me. I can't say any fairer than that. No, you can't. That was Noel Gallagher speaking in 2006 to the late Michael Parkinson, who passed away on Thursday, aged 88. And I was reminded of that interview by my next guest, Cullen Buick. Cullen, how are you? Jessica. Okay. Uh, there... <laughs> We spoke about Oasis the last time you were on and uh, that interview with Michael Parkinson is class. It's the best interview for me. Mm -hmm. And I love an interview, Jess. Okay. And um, I watched, I have watched that interview, I would say conservatively 17 times. Nice. And uh, in different iterations. And I highly recommend it to anyone listening who hasn't seen it. They might have gone down a parky wormhole since the news broke. Mm. But it's on YouTube. It's from 2006. Yep. Oasis have just released their best of. And uh, 
Noel Gallagher comes on for 25 minutes. There's no performance, no musical instrument, nothing. He just sits down with Parkinson and has a chat. They start off with talking about the album mm-hmm. and why some songs were left out versus others that were included. Um, they talk about the relationship between Noel and Liam because at the time it was on its last legs. They had three years to go before they split up and haven't spoken since really. But what's really interesting is that Parkinson starts bringing up their childhood and you see a side of Noel for about 60 to 90 seconds maybe that you'll never see yeah. since. And uh, it's it's really all about Parkinson and his interviewing style and his, uh, was it yourself? Yeah, it was yourself saying to me earlier, his um, fearlessness towards silence. It's it's masterful. So I remember watching it every weekend with my dad. Like we would sit down and we'd watch it. And at the time, like, I don't know how old I would have been, but you kind of just watch it because it's on the telly and you know that it's entertaining and like dad was laughing and the audience was laughing and there was like, it was an enjoyable watch. But now, and I have, I often go back and watch his interviews. You see his skills as a broadcaster. Like he's not afraid of silence, but he's also, my favourite one was an interview he did with Robin Williams. And Robin Williams comes out larger than life, absolutely manic. Parkinson's not in control at all. But at one point you just see him sit back, fold his arms and laugh because he's happy to embrace it. And there are very few of those interview style shows that allow an interview to breathe. Like I would have loved David Letterman and Conan and all those kind of late night shows. But very often those interviews are like seven to 12 minutes. And it's like you're on to sell something. Here's a cute anecdote. Goodbye. Good luck. Good night. Whereas Parkinson had 25 minutes to give to a guest. Mm. And you learn so much. And like the interviews with Stephen Fry were always incredible with Parkinson and with Billy Connolly were always incredible. And uh, yeah, I would, if you've got nothing else to do after the oh, show, yeah. go back mm. and sit down and watch all of his interviews on um, YouTube. Yeah. If you're having a quiet Saturday night, you can liven it up with you a bit of parky. He does one with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, which is a treat. Oh. You know, Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't really do anything. And it yeah. was around... I think it was around the time of Gangs in New York, so you're talking 20 years ago. Yeah. And he's on with someone, and for the life of me, I can't remember who he's on with, but he's so interested because Parkinson challenges his method acting mm. and how much Daniel Day-Lewis's method acting impacted his colleagues because how yeah. into the roles he would get. Like, I mean, there's famous stories about all of the roles because he wasn't in that many movies. And, um, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis is unashamedly uh, talking about the wisdom of his own uh, approach, but also says, like, I don't care what actors do to prepare as long as they're prepared. It's mm. just very interesting that he got that out of him. And then I think his farewell show, he had, like, he's, Billy Connolly, cause, did he discover Con- Billy Connolly? Was it, wasn't that? I don't know, but there was like a long-standing, yeah. deep friendship between the two mm. and they deeply respected each other as well. Then he, in his last show, he had Billy Connolly, David Beckham and he had Peter Kay. And what was really interesting about Peter Kay was a bit like the Robin Williams thing was that Peter Kay is like tough to control because yeah. he's so funny and the audience love him so much that it's like overpowering for whoever else he's on with. But Parkinson had like a fatherly relationship with him and at one stage it's like, calm down Peter. Yeah. And uh, he kind of was like, oh, sorry, sorry. Because yeah. Peter Kay's like, oh, my mom loves you. So, um, and I don't know what it is because like the way you broke it down there is true. It's like the time and the duration of interviews is like mm. seven to 12 minutes is such a typical kind of modern interview. And I don't know if they just had more time back then because you had like the Johnny Carson stuff as well. I look back on every so often. Yeah. And Dick Cavett, who was an amazing interviewer in America. And Dick Cavett and Parkinson had a huge rivalry and didn't really like each other because I suppose they were direct rivals from across the sea. Um, and I don't know if maybe there was just more time. 
Back but then. I also think on the BBC because there was no ads as well. Yeah. Like it's the same kind of thing with uh, Graham Norton on BBC. I think the uninterrupted, solely focused and having that multi-guest format is really interesting rather than you coming on to sell something and then going off well, and yeah. then someone else coming on. You know, it, it just, it lets a conversation evolve. I think the Graham Norton show is one of the only talk show type things that I'd actually like now. But you see, I don't think they're deep conversations. I just think they're fun. It's like being in a Yeah, a so pub. sorry, I don't mean deep. I mean like as in um, sort of extended conversations yeah. rather than in short hits. Well, no, it is definitely interesting seeing the guests interact with each other and how they yeah. change and... Because they all they they always came out together, didn't they? In the Graham no. Norton show, was oh, it one on by Graham one? Oh, Graham Norton. It depends if it was like a super famous person. Sometimes they'd come out either on their own oh, yeah, or else yeah, yeah. after. But with Parkinson, he'd have like a main guest, and then the main guest they'd would stay, join. and then guest two would come in. See that dynamic is fascinating yeah. to me. How people change then when someone else comes in. Yeah, maybe I don't know. It's funny. We I had this conversation with our colleague Joe Malloy about this, and it was the day before Parkinson passed away. During, oh, no during the week and we just happened to be talking about Parkinson's interviewing style yeah because Joe loves talking about this stuff and like so do you and it's really interesting hearing broadcasters talk about it as well and like you can't help but I don't know I mean do you take notes from other broadcasters or do you do your own thing because Joe had his own opinions about it uh, I, like no I wouldn't take notes but like I think you're kind of influenced on the media that you consume like you, yeah. I, I, you'd kind of and we're going to, just to let people know, you're actually here to talk about podcasts rather than Michael Parkinson. Although we, I know, but this news took over. I know, I know. We could do half an hour on this. Yeah. But uh, but I, there, I definitely pick up things that I don't like easier than I do pick up things that I do like. Really? Yeah. So what, uh, what would you dislike most in, a, in an interviewer? People who don't listen. Or actually, no, my number one bugbear... And I've seen it so many times, either when I'm like at a press junket or in interviews, is when someone has like a list of 10 questions and they read through their 10 questions without responding to what the guest has just said. Oh, my God. Or like, do you remember the COVID press conferences or any press conference for that matter? When a journalist has their shot, Mm. so they ask three or four questions at a time. And I remember specifically at the start of lockdown in the UK when Boris Johnson was bombarded with multiple Mm. questions at once. So inevitably, he would answer the one that's easiest for him to answer. And then the best questions are left behind. It was like, ask short, incisive questions. Yeah. Put them, put your interview in a difficult position if that's what they deserve to be in. It's interesting, different approaches. Mm. But um, what a a master of his craft. like, And it's the series that he did with Muhammad Ali like we talked about it during the week and mm. off the ball too. Um, he was just so brilliant at what he did. Just love talking to anyone who's so brilliant and passionate about what they do. I know. One of my regrets, a lot of our colleagues on the day he passed away were um, posting pictures because he was in here a few times over the years. Yeah. And I never got a picture with him. There's a, there is or was a video in our reception area of yeah. him, isn't there? It's like yeah, a best, he was on with PK. Yep. Yeah. He's been on with Pat a few times and uh, I didn't get a picture. Did you meet him? I think I said hello to him. I'm yeah. not, I wouldn't be one for that now. You'd be too cool now for that now. No, it's not too cool. I'm just, I'm very introverted. I don't talk to people unless I have I know, to. I this would shock people. I don't think so. A lot of broadcasters are a bit introverted. Yeah, we're all weirdos. That's interesting. Uh, people yeah. who talked for a living don't yeah. talk that much. Yeah. I remember my first job out of college, I was a researcher on the Moncrief show mm. and mum and dad always listen to news talk because we're great. Uh, but when I came in and I met Sean, I was kind of taken aback at how quiet like he keeps himself to himself yeah and then when he's on air he becomes all jazz hands but that's quite typical like there's a fair few people in here that are 
introverts that oh, yeah, just I'm talk for a living. Oh, yeah, thinking of loads in my head. Loads. Sure, all of your uh, colleagues and off the ball, I would say, most of them anyway are fairly No, not all of them. I mean, I don't want to be named names on a Saturday evening. People could be driving and minding their own business and then they're name dropped on national radio. But I can think of, of mutual people. I'm telling you with my eyes yeah, right now no, about there are people who yeah. are just like that off air. Yeah. yeah. But some people aren't. Yeah. Uh, right, let's talk about the topic at hand. Podcasts. Yeah. Because uh, every Egypt, including this Egypt, uh, has a podcast. And it can be quite difficult to, just for those of you not in the room, he just nodded at me going, yeah, you are in Egypt, thanks so much. Uh, there are so many. And it's kind of like that thing where you sit down to watch Netflix uh. and you spend so long scrolling that you couldn't be bothered to actually watch anything, so you just go to mm-hmm. bed. And that kind of can happen with podcasts as well. Mm-hmm. So in keeping with our uh, broadcasty conversation and tone of conversation, are you a judgy cow when it comes to podcasts? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't waste my time on something mm-hmm. that's not entertaining me I mean uh, like get off my high horse huh Jesus <laughs> but I mean that's that's how I'd feel I think that's what everyone's like isn't it because like you've already alluded to there's so much content out there that you drown in it so you have to be picky but do you discount things based on production quality no I wouldn't fun- I mean you could read a lot into this yeah. but I would be forgiving of sound quality issues oh I'm not well yeah I've a, I actually have a, f- a friend of mine who also works in media we talk about this a fair bit and he'd be extremely um, I suppose what would you call it like he, he wouldn't suffer poor audio or no. substandard audio in his mind but his quality of audio would vary to mine like I would be like no, that's fine I can listen to it I'd be way more way way more invested in the content itself and the direction of conversation versus sound. So there have been a few podcasts that have been recommended to me over the years and I've put them on and you know that the content is going to be interesting. But if it sounds like it's been recorded in an empty RDS Hall 1, like go away. Like I, I, I'm not able for that. No, I don't care. Like if you, lo- if you listen back to like um, incredible audio over the years, like Martin Luther King's um, uh, I Had a Dream. No, sorry. We're not uh, bringing him into this conversation. We're here to talk about podcasts. Yeah, like you can't bring though. in... But, uh, you know, I'm not like, oh, jeez, I wish the sound call- I wish the sound engineer was on his game that day. Well, I kind of do. It would have been great. No, I mean, uh, that adds to the character of it. No, no, it's all about what's said, not how it's said. Or, or the sound of how it's said. I can't believe you brought up Martin Luther King in a conversation about podcasts. Uh, anyway, so you set yourself this challenge. Yeah. To come yeah. up with your top three podcasts. Yeah. And it's, it's actually tough to rate them, I would say. Now, um, I'm going to start right at the top. I'm going to go Smartless number one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, a friend of mine, Joe Harrington, used to work on Irish media, now lives in Australia, is travelling Europe as we speak, put me on to this podcast. Yes. So, we have Sean Hayes. Mm-hmm. You have Will Arnett. Mm-hmm. And you have Jason State. No, Jason Bateman. Bateman. I always say Stateman. From, mm. Jason Bateman, the three lads. And I was like, wow, that's a bit of an all-star cast. Wow. Well, I'll definitely listen to it that. And then I went through the list of episodes. Yeah. Um, and I was like, geez, these guys, they're getting A-lister after A-lister on this. And the first one that I listened to was Bradley Cooper. Oh, that was an emotive episode. Because he was talking about, it was actually picked up by a publication, the quotes from yeah. it about his drug problems and all that. And I was like, oh, I never knew he had drug problems. And then I listened to it. And then I thought, ah, it's all right. I mean, I'm a massive Will Arnett fan. So, so that he'd be my number one. Yeah. And I like the other two and I like the rapport that they all have. They're clearly actually friends, mm-hmm. you can tell, which is a huge thing for me as well, is a genuine rapport between people. And But I did think that interview was at times a bit sycophantic, so I thought, I'm not sure about this overall. So I gave another few episodes a go. Yeah. 
but there are just so many brilliant ones. And then I guess we grew up in a time when we were consuming media where like uh, celebrities and A-listers are, are big time celebrities anyway would be kind of otherworldly and like oh they wouldn't be like the rest of us. Yeah. But I think in this world of podcasts they're actually showing that oh, these people have just been given high profiles but they're actually very normal. And I think that podcast particularly showcases that. So I, not to be that person but I was on it from episode one mm. and uh, it was one of the podcasts that properly made me laugh out loud listen to in the kitchen which is a treat which is an absolute treat and they also started during the pandemic mm. so like you were talking the episode where they had Will Ferrell on they were like okay so it's two o'clock in the afternoon now what are you going to do with the rest of your pandemic day and he Perfect. was like well I'm going to go for a walk and I might do the dishwasher and you know it, it is a bit more insight and the fact that everybody around that table or that zoom screen is an A-lister means they all kind of talk the same language and they're all comfortable with each other as well. They know that there's no sort of gotcha journalism at play. Yeah. However, did you watch the TV show, the documentary? No, it got sent to me. Don't watch it. Oh, no. It's ruined the podcast for me. Oh, no way. Yeah, they all come across a little bit dickish. Really? Yeah. It, like, in a playing up to the caricature versions of themselves, I watched it when I was on my holidays in June. And I haven't been able to listen to the podcast since. No way. Yeah. Go on. I just, I don't know, like you kind of see Jason Bateman being a little bit of a prima donna, like on the stage. And I'm sorry, Jason, if you're listening, which I'm sure you are, but like he's sitting on the stage before the live show and he's all like, you know, it would be like kind of patronizing someone that he was working with, asking for like a coffee and some snacks. And I I just didn't really like it. And you kind of see elements of the vanity and... The ego, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it just feels a little bit self-indulgent and I kind of have the ick now. Damn. Yeah, I won't. I'll stay away from it. No, I mean, look, there are times where uh, it would annoy me as well, like, but not to that extent. Like, I think sometimes they're like probably slightly too harsh and Sean. I love Sean Hayes. But uh, he takes it very well and he laughs at all, so he he seems to love them. So I suppose it's all, all fair in that way. Um, with Arnett can just do no wrong for me because his comic him. timing is just sensational. And Jason, yeah, I like him sometimes because I think they mock him for the questions he asks that, that are a bit like long-winded. And yeah, he, he doesn't really know, yeah, he doesn't know where he's whatever, going. Yeah. But I kind of find that endearing. And I also like him as an actor. Um, so do I, but just... I but no, would, that's interesting to hear that. And I, I get what you mean completely. I would steer clear. But I'd love to know what you think. You can email com if you agree or not. Okay, so that's smart list. That would be on my list or it would have been on my list. You give me one. Uh, What's your number one? My number one is Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend Oh that was my next one That's my number two love Conan O'Brien And we haven't seen each other's lists No Yeah. Uh, so go on I So the premise of this It's not a million miles away from Smartless It's Conan uh, sits down with his assistant Sona And a producer called Matt Gorley And every week they have Between 45 and 60 minute chats With different celebrities And it is bananas and what's happened over time because again I've been listening to that one pretty much since the beginning is that the rapport between his team is as important as the guests that he's talking to in some instances so like the preamble that they have beforehand sometimes it's a bit self-indulgent but look that's the way it is Uh, but it's it's that kind of you feel like you're sitting around the table of a pub like my favourite kind of radio is if we all just imagine we're sitting down in Peter's pub on a Friday evening mm-hmm. having a chat around the table. I love that kind of radio and I love that type of pod- podcast. And that feels like that for me in terms of Conan. And this week he had 
my all-time fave John Mulaney on. And it makes me so happy. And the conversations that Conan has, because there has been overlap, obviously, between those who've been on Smartless and those who are on Conan. But I could just listen to Conan for days. Mm. It makes me so happy. It took me a while to be a Conan convert and... A buddy of mine was like, oh, he's one of the funniest people ever. Yeah. And then I used to watch his talk show in clips on YouTube. Yes. And I was like, oh, he's a bit much. And that would be very unlike me to describe anyone as a bit much. Like, I would be like, well, you know. People in and, glass houses. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And then then the more and more I consumed him, I was yeah. like, oh, no, he's a genius. This guy's a comic genius. He is a comic genius. And like what I love, because I'm a bit of an SL, SNL obsessive Are type you? person as well. Yeah. Love SNL. Love, really? Yeah. So many of the people who so come through it. Uh, no, no, it is now, but like back in the day, yeah. when you can go back and you can curate your own playlist on YouTube of the best sketches mm. and best skits and the inside stories of behind the scenes and all the rest. I just love it. Um, but Conan was a writer there. Then he went to The Simpsons, then mm. he got The Late Night Show. And I just think his journey and his progress over his career is utterly fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, also a writer during the peak of The Simpsons, which is... that's the monorail. The yeah, the monorail. And like l- like watching those classic Simpsons episodes back, you can hear Conan's mm-hmm. jokes, like you can hear them in the characters. Yeah. Um, and also when he took over that um, chat show in the mid-90s, like people hated him. And he, he had to overcome that. He talks about he that talks quite about a bit. He talks about that regularly, about how he overcame the whole because thing. Because he had Bill Hader on the podcast. Yeah, I listened to that one. That's good. And like, it was so good. But Bill Hader talked about, you know, how Conan's show in 93 was kind of the first thing that he and his friends saw as their own cultural thing. Mm. Yeah. And Conan was like, I wish you guys had said that back in 93 oh, because yeah. we were drowning in bad press and people were literally wishing him harm because he wasn't David Letterman. Yeah. Um. But yeah. No. I just. I think the podcast is great. And the thing about Conan is like he's just, he's ridiculously silly and stupid and really funny, but he takes it all so seriously. But he doesn't take himself seriously, and that's the crucial difference. No, but he's so intelligent, you know. Oh yeah. Like oh, you can see how quick he is. But it's just my my favorite things. If I'm ever cranky, which is obviously very rare because I'm just rainbows and sunshine, mm. uh, is mm. to watch, uh, to watch Conan and Bill Burr. Oh man, I love Bill Burr so much. Like the accent alone, but the fact that he gets so wound up about things and you always know Conan finds something proper funny yeah. when he like grabs his tummy and like properly yeah. laughs. It makes me so happy. Yeah, and you also know when he's um, laughing to be nice and there is a lit- there's a subtle difference yeah. if you watch him enough. Oh my God, you had a Bill Burr stuff. I've actually watched him so much I can't watch him again. They always come up as a suggestion even though I've watched <sighs> him already. So happy. But Bill Burr and Conan, because they're from the same state. They're both. Um, Massachusetts, Massachusetts yeah. but different upbringings are similar I can't uh, remember uh, no, well, no, Irish American upbringings yeah but they? Conan's family were a little bit more well to do yeah and you can tell in there yeah and that that's why I think it, it adds to the comedy is yeah. they've slightly different upbringings but mm-hmm. they can still relate to a lot of what they're doing and and even the John Mulaney recent episode remember you and I were both separately uh, thrilled when it yeah. dropped it was like oh yes excellent we love both of them mm-hmm. I saw John Mulaney at the start of this year in I Dublin it, yeah. and he used to live in Dublin and you know when he like American comedians come over and they talk about Ireland and Dublin mm. guys but he genuinely knew he was on about the new Tesco in Baggett Street and everybody lost their <laughs> mind because he went here for like a semester or something in college so he actually knew his Irish stuff Yeah, and uh, like he was just brilliant like at one point there was one point he did his Al Pacino part because you know like John Mulaney like his huge drug problem was in rehab Watch the special on Netflix Yeah and he he, I was, he was talking about Al Pacino ringing him yeah. and I was like I was literally in pain like actually in pain with tears coming down my face being please don't say another funny word because this might be this might turn horrific like that's yeah. how funny he was but the two of them together 
and how they both vied for attention growing up mm. uh, in a family full of other siblings. It was just brilliant to listen to the things they would do to get attention. It was like, again, you shouldn't be wa- listening to these things in public because you just laugh out loud on your own. Yeah. Walking by with earbuds where it might not look like you're actually listening to anything and no, you're, you're just hysterical. Yeah. But in a good way. And that's what they do. And also one more shout. I know you have to go. Mark Marin. Yeah. I have a love-hate relationship with him, right? Because mm-hmm. I think on his game, he's an absolutely excellent interviewer. He did Killian Murphy recently and it was brilliant. Mm. You know, obviously biased because they talk about Cork a lot. And Mark Maron's very you interested Cork in Cork. Are you from Cork? Are you? But he takes 15 minutes to get going. Yeah. And it wrecks my head. So I just skipped the 15, but like, I have no interest in listening to him at the start. Mm. And then he did this one episode with a comedian called Arnie Adams, which a lot of people might not know. He's in this documentary called Comedian, which was set in about 2001, 2002. It's Jerry Seinfeld's documentary that he did right after, only a couple of years after the show Seinfeld ended. Uh And Jerry Seinfeld's a multi, multi multi-millionaire, but goes back on tour with brand new material and he films himself dying on stage with this brand new material, even though he's he's a complete superstar. And then you have Seinfeld, who's struggling himself, and this newcomer, Arnie Adams, who is just so determined to become a star but it just does not come across well at all in a documentary. Mm. I highly recommend anyone watching this. It's a guy dying on his feet and so bitter about the fact that he is and he thinks he's better than every other comedian on the circuit and he can't believe that he's not as famous as Jerry Seinfeld. And it's their two journeys coinciding with each other. Anyway, so it's from 2001. What's it called again? Comedian. It's on Netflix still. I've watched it about three or four times and you get something new from it every single time. Highly, highly recommend people watch it. Honest to God, you will not be disappointed by how entertaining this is. So 20 years later, Arnie Adams goes on the Mark Maron podcast and the dynamic between them is electric because Mark Maron can't stand them. Because that documentary went down really badly in the world of comedians. Okay. Especially with Arnie himself because he felt he was depicted very unfairly by Jerry and other comedians were jealous that they weren't covered in a documentary by Jerry and that Jerry focused on Arnie. And the reason that Jerry focused on Arnie is because Arnie was dying so much that it took away from Jerry dying on stage. Really controversial in the world of comedians and the dynamic between this pair 20 years later. Mm. Wow. You you actually get awkward listening to it because it's such a real conversation. Okay, yeah. They Like there's genuine hostility betwi- uh, between them and there's only two of them. And they get over it a bit and you then they go back attention. to it and then yeah. they get over it and they go back to it. And I went on Reddit afterwards as a huge thread on Reddit about it. I have a love-hate relationship with the podcast itself but that mm. episode, Mark Maron and Arnie Adams from I think it's about this time last year. Okay, that is a good recommendation. I have a recommendation yep. for you. Yes. You still haven't seen Ted Lasso, have you? Mm-mm. Okay, well, we need to fix that. But uh, one of the actors and the writers on Ted Lasso, uh, Brett Goldstein, okay. he has a podcast called Films to be Buried With. Okay. And I think you would like it because you're into your movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I was listening last night, uh, I went out for a walk and I was listening to the one with Jason Sudeikis, who is love Ted him. Lasso. Yeah, I love Jason Sudeikis, yeah. It made my heart so happy. Oh, really? Yeah. Like it is such a nice interview. And so basically it, it's kind of like a little bit like Desert Island Discs in that it's like the same few questions like each time. Like it, it's the same formula of an interview, but obviously it changes based on the guest. So it's like, what was the first film you remember seeing? What was the film that made you laugh or cry or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But you learn so much about different guests based on their movies and they kind of get to bring in really good anecdotes. Yeah. So, uh, Films to be Buried With by Brett Goldstein is definitely Yeah, okay, that's right up my street, yeah. I'll yeah. give it a go. 
Do and he has good quality guests like of the Jason Stakes of the world. It's kind of a mixed bag. Obviously, since, since he's become more famous, uh, getting more he's more. getting more access to people. But there's a good mixed bag of people like um, Irish comedian Ashton B has been on it. There's been a oh. whole host of comedians because he's a stand up as well. Uh, but bit by bit, the guest list is getting better. But uh, I found it fascinating and I'm not a movie person. Well, that, well that's a good sell. That's a great sell. There you you are. see, I, I'm not even looking for the most famous. I'm just looking for the most interesting. And I would find Jason Sudeikis very interesting. Yeah, no, it is uh, it is a very good listen. Uh, right, if you have any other pod- podcast recommendations for us, uh, email techtalk at newstalk.com. Uh, Cullen Boog, thank you so much. Thanks, Jess. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. Uh, this is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, in a few minutes' time, the nation's sweetheart, John Fardy, will be here to grace us with his presence. And you've bothered to show up for our little chat this week. Hey, I needed to rest. I needed to unplug, which I did. But show still went out. I just, you know. I wasn't calling you out. Well, you know, it kind of sounds a bit judgy, but I'm here now. Okay. Back, refreshed, tanned, I think you might even say. Yeah, everyone has said that you look quite tanned and yeah, healthy. Yeah. There you go. You could take well, it as a compliment or you could take it as you looked awful before yeah, you, you went like a away. Yeah, you caved in ashtray all year. What happened? Uh, come here to me. What's on your show this week? Well, I have a very interesting and unusual guest guest in the form of the boxer Tyson Fury and his wife Paris. There is a new Netflix show called At Home with the Furies and I talked to Tyson Fury about that and indeed his wife he's an interesting guy he's not everybody's cup of tea but uh, fascinating stuff we also have the week's new reviews reviews, and Alison Curtis on her favourite movie so uh, lots going on Right all that is coming up after 6 o'clock but we couldn't leave the show this week without touching upon the glorious uh, snafu shall we say at Bank of Ireland from earlier in the week Kier O'Brien of the Irish Times is with me now Kier, I'm sure everybody knows what's happened but just for entertainment purposes uh, remind us what exactly happened So on Tuesday um, the banks basically the online services the app the, the online platform started to malfunction a bit people couldn't get access to it they couldn't check balances they couldn't transfer money Um, Not everybody, but for a lot of customers. And then things started to get a bit weirder when money started to appear in people's accounts that wasn't actually theirs. You know, there was a thousand euro up to a thousand euro in some cases. People started noticing they had this extra money. So, of course, the as things tend to do these days, it kind of went a bit viral. People realised they could transfer the money out of their accounts and kind of get around any of those um, pesky limits that they have on ATMs. Uh, and they started withdrawing the money. And that caused absolute chaos, as you might imagine, because, you know, it's like this klaxon call goes out. You know, Bank of Ireland is giving away free money. And it, the story has gone everywhere. It's gone. It's it made the New York Times, New York Post everywhere. Um, you know, news these days, it's a it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a global thing. But it was basically being billed as, you know, it, these ATMs are basically firing out free money at people, which, as we know, was not strictly speaking the case. So people were queuing up trying to take out the money, transferring into Revolut accounts um, because they thought, well, you know, if I get to keep this, brilliant. Uh, we now know that that is definitely not the case because obviously there is a trail for all this stuff. And even if you've taken the money out and spent it, you will have to repay it to the bank. I think the more serious side of this, though, is that once more, Bank of Ireland's uh, online system has basically fallen over. And 
This is a bank, like many other banks, and they are not the only one who's ha- who've had problems with their online systems. We should specify that. But, you know, they've this is the second one in the space of about six weeks, definitely in the space of two months, where people couldn't do the basics online. You know, I think mm-hmm. the last one was at the end of June and they had to open branches the next day, even though it was a Saturday, because people couldn't transfer money, which means wages couldn't be paid, bills couldn't be paid, in which case, you know, sometimes mortgage payments might not have gone through. And this is a serious issue. If you are going to push people towards a digital platform, if you are going to say, we are going to reduce the staff that we have in our branches, we are going to close branches, we want everybody doing everything online, at least make sure that your online platform works. And while, look, no platform is immune from that, you know, glitches happen, it just seems to happen a little too often to Bank of Ireland for most people's liking. I mean, look, at Revolut had a problem last year, but then again, so did Bank of Ireland, you know, around the same time where people couldn't buy Bruce Springsteen tickets. That caused absolute mayhem. People couldn't buy concert tickets in one of the most kind of coveted ticket sales that were at the time. It would be like it happening now with the Taylor Swift tickets or Coldplay. And, you know, people couldn't uh, authorize transactions because that's what you, you need all these platforms now to authorize your, your online spending. And people lost out on tickets and they were not happy. And then, you know, a few weeks later it happened again. So this is the kind of, this is the problem for banks. You know, you, you have to have a working platform if you expect people to use it as their primary way of interacting with you. So please just get your stuff together. And, uh, you know, as I said, it, it, it glitches happen. Mistakes happen. Sometimes people push the wrong button. But the problem is, is that people don't care. Like the, the average customer doesn't care why it's happened. They just know that they can't use their online banking yet again. And they have stuff that they need to do. Mm-hmm. So I think if people are going to get hit by, you know, in some cases, people would have inadvertently gone over their 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 balance that was in their account. So they may have, you know, maybe withdrawn more money accidentally because they couldn't check their balance. And, you know, there was a genuine reason for that. Those people should not be penalised. And I don't think that the, that Bank of Ireland are talking about that, penalising them with extra charges for that, because this is Bank of Ireland's fault. Now, obviously, the people who knew, I mean, I had a Bank of Ireland account for, for a very long time that had about 30 cents in it because I opened it to get something free. I think it was a free student card at the time. And I never really used it. So I had about 30 cents in the account. Now, if I suddenly start transferring a thousand euro or hundreds of euro out of that account mm-hmm. after not using it for, for three or four years, you know, they're going to know that there is something up there. I mean, the people who did that obviously will have to 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 answer in some way for the fact that they knew they didn't have the money. They took it anyway. Um, but look, everybody loves getting one over on the banks. We, we do like to kick the banks um when stuff like this happens. So you, you, I suppose you can't really blame people for thinking, you know, I might get away with this. The thing is, though, they won't, because obviously, as I said, all of these systems are electronic. There is a trail. So if you took the money out, they're going to know that you took it. And I saw in one case somebody saying he was off to uh, off to Australia. Or, sorry, I actually don't even know if it was a he, but I assume it was a he. He was off to Australia um, in a couple of days' time, so look getting the money back. But the problem is, is that will stay on your record. And once it goes over a certain period of time, you know, then it becomes an issue for you further down the line. So while short-term gain, yes, you've got this money, it, you know, if you have to come back at any point to Ireland and, you know, apply for a mortgage or, you know, apply for a loan, like stuff like this does have a habit of coming back to bite you in the backside. Yeah, it does. And look, th- I was being a bit facetious when I said for entertainment purposes, that there, as you outlined there, there were serious sides to this. But the, the bigger question that I have, and I know that you and I don't have the answers as much as uh, we can speculate and all the rest, but like things do go wrong. There's human error, there's technical error, there's all that kind of jazz. But like I remember being a student and having, say, €18.76 in my account and not being able to take out 20 quid because I didn't have 20 quid. 
and obviously the bank wasn't going to be sound in that instance and, and it just feels slightly double standard and it also feels like I suppose my big concern is how, how easily these technical glitches can happen and also how frequently they seem to be happening. Yeah, see, look, I'm I'm like you. I love I love the I love technology. I love the ease of access I have with all of this stuff to my money, you know, around the clock. When I was a student, you know, you didn't have this because they didn't have online banking. And that's <laughs> probably showing my yeah. age. But you know, I, 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 again, like you, I can remember having, you know, this, like earning like 30 quid a week, you know, because you were working, you know, a few hours and, and kind of living on that money. Um, it's not fun. No. And it does always feel like the consumer is the one who's getting clobbered. I mean, we've seen this now at the moment with the debate over interest rates on savings accounts. And, you know, the banks are saying, well, if we raise the interest rate on savings accounts, we'll all ha- also have to raise the mortgage rates. Um, and whether or not you care about that kind of, you know, it, it's it's down to whether which side of the fence you fall on, whether you're a saver, whether you're a mortgage holder, whether you're both. Um, I do think that, yeah, I mean, look, that there's been a lot of kind of there's been a lot of issues with the banks um, going back to obviously 2008, the banking crash, you know, when we effectively um, bankrolled banks for, for a long time, we bailed them out. Um, and it does feel like when a mistake like this happens, you know, consumers suffer regardless of whose fault it is. So those people who, you know, who couldn't pay their bills or who couldn't transfer money, who couldn't get access to money. And then because the guards had to be sent out in some cases to crowd control at ATMs and ATMs were being emptied. So if you genuinely had to get money out from your local ATM, but you couldn't because either they had closed it off or it was completely empty or there was queues down the road and there's people killing each other trying to get to it. You know, again, you know, it, it, it is the consumer that it comes back and slaps in the face. And I think, you know, Bank of Ireland while they've they're as prone to they're as open to mistakes as as the next person look we glitches happen mistakes happen human error happens as you said the problem here is is that you know there doesn't just doesn't seem to be i don't know enough not enough apology but you know how do they make up for something like this how do you make it up to your customers for basically leaving them cut off from their money uh, from their banking facilities for a set amount of time on so regular a basis at this point, you know, I, mean, I, I said Revolut had a problem last year, but, you know, that was last year. Um, th- these issues, if they come up as often as they seem to, I mean, it just always seems like I'm talking about Bank of Ireland and problems at Bank of Ireland. And this is the bank that's supposed to be digitally enabled and customer focused. And, you know, this week we haven't seen much of either because, yes, they're, they may be digitally enabled, but people couldn't actually use it so there's very not very much enabled there and the customer focused side of things I mean we've all had dealings with banks where we feel like banks are not on our side mm-hmm. um, and this doesn't help matters at all because people are, are questioning you know why you know people who took out a thousand euro that they didn't have are going to be pursued for the money when you know the banks were bailed out and we feel like you know that it's always the customers that get kicked in the ass basically when a bank makes a mistake but when you know, when the banks make a mistake, we bail them out. And when banks make a mistake, the, the customer kind of takes advantage of that mistake. Well, then we still have to kind of take it on the chin. It just doesn't seem fair. Yeah, look, we will see what happens, but who knows. Uh, Kira Orion of the Irish Times, as always, thanks so much for joining us here on Newstalk. Thank you for having me. And that's it from me this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Jonathan on Monday's News Talk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.